So uh, appreciate the introduction and uh, going to talk a little bit about something closer to home. Um, the Michael's uh, presentation on Mars was fascinating. As you'll see, uh, my first professional work was in EDL for Mars. So it's got a special place in my heart. I'm always excited to see uh, what JPL is doing out there. Godspeed to that team come Thursday. I know we'll all have our fingers crossed and wish them the best. I want to talk a little bit then about uh, the, our nearer neighbor, the moon, and what Intuitive Machines is doing on our lunar program. And uh, this will be a slightly less technical, more of an overview of, of kind of what is going on and, and what does it look like and what are our aspirations going forward as part of the, the growing um, lunar transportation and, and commerce space. So a, a little bit about me. Um, I, I put the two things on the left just to kind of contextualize uh, the kind of person who's speaking to you. I, uh, I played offensive line at uh, the University of Texas uh, in, the, in the 90s, which I like to joke was a, uh, um, a millennia ago, um, where I, I stayed through and got my bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in aerospace engineering. Um, along the way, I learned to play uh, bass guitar in a band, and uh, not just any band, the, uh, my compadres there, Dr. Jeremy Ray is the uh, agency lead for uh, Ascent Guidant Logic, and uh, the drummer who's hiding out behind the drums is Ron Sesteric, who's one of the Splice Technology uh, subject matter experts, which is a NASA project looking at precision landing and hazard avoidance technologies. So uh, we, we bonded there, but those two roles uh, basically put me in a, in a, um, a mindset of being a, a person who appreciates um, working as a team and, and seeing complex tasks, whether it's, it was executing a football play or, or playing a song together become executed. And it really sharpened my uh, interest in, in doing space exploration and putting space systems together to accomplish things we hadn't, hadn't done before. And my first exposure to that was on uh, the MSL mission, where um, I was part of the EDL team developing the navigation system for MSL. Later, I had an opportunity to work on automated rendezvous, prox ops, and docking, and, and we developed a concept at NASA for robotically uh, docking and servicing and potentially deorbiting um, the Hubble telescope. So we've got some interesting problems to tackle there. I, uh, as, as mentioned earlier, was the Orbit GNC mode team lead for Orion for a number of years, where we were doing not only rendezvous, prox ops, and docking, but also Earth to Moon navigation and, and orbital operations. But towards the end of my career at NASA, uh, I was on a project called All Hat, which was the Autonomous Landing Hazard Avoidance Task, a technology uh, project, which actually allowed me to work with Andrew Johnson, who uh, you saw in the uh, helicopter testing in, in one of the earlier videos. So Andrew is a colleague and a, and a good friend of mine. And uh, we worked together on uh, EDL and uh, precision landing hazard avoidance technologies which we flight tested in a project called Morpheus. And I will show a video. Uh, Morpheus was a project led uh, by JSC and uh, we were going after three technologies, uh, a LOX methane technology uh, for our engines, as well as precision landing hazard avoidance technologies and uh, an autonomous systems capability on board the vehicle. Uh, you can find quite a few videos of the flight tests we did with Morpheus. We did uh, 15 free flight tests, and uh, one of them crashed, but uh, the, the lean development paradigm we had included um, recovery from that crash. We pushed early to hardware. 
understanding that a loss of vehicle was an acceptable design risk. And uh, because of that, when we built the second vehicle, we built it much faster, much more capable, and it ended up being a, a robust test stand for us to accomplish all the mission objectives we had in the project. And this was the next to last test. So uh, the reason I bring it up, this was flying uh, Morpheus with embedded closed loop uh, GNNC, uh, an autonomous mission manager, and the all hat system, which included a, a laser scanner, um, laser range finders, uh, Doppler velocity measurements, and optical measurements all folded back into identifying the safe site and landing there. A lot of these concepts are the same concepts that we folded into our lunar capability. But uh, more importantly, it was a night test, and so it looks really cool. We'll go ahead and play this. So um, you can understand why we were excited by the success of Morpheus. And uh, it really did whet my appetite for uh, going out and developing systems with small teams and, uh, and, and really seeing what we could do with uh, good systems engineering and, and the technology that we uh, had developed for engineering within the uh, aerospace community. And uh, uh, the tests were, were great. We did crash vehicles, I mentioned, and uh, many of those folks have gone on either to become a part of intuitive machines or, or lead projects in their own right uh, back at NASA. So uh, my partners, Cam and Steve and I came out and, and it was uh, early in the company, we were in think tank years. And just to give you an idea of the kind of things we did before we circled back around to focusing on, on the moon, we developed dynamic trainers for, for the drilling industry and applied CFD techniques to uh, capping stack oper operations for, for subsea blowouts. We developed uh, a rendezvous and docking sensor approach for a uh, self-injecting IV system um, for observing uh, patients in, in hot zones and hospitals. 
We flew drones in the Antarctic. But we did space work developing a uh, universal reentry vehicle for bringing uh, small samples back from the International Space Station. We took that through uh, a CDR design phase. And then uh, we played a small role, but uh, are very proud of the role we played in uh, helping develop the shape model method uh, used by OSIRIS-REx uh, for their recent touch and go, and also uh, per uh, perform the vision navigation design validation for that mission, uh, which in some ways uh, inspired some of the, the systems we're using for our lunar program. Over the last three to four years though, we've really refocused at being a, a space company again. And um, we have uh, really a, a complete capability to execute lunar missions. One of the things is very easy to do when you're talking about, especially the commercial lunar payload um, delivery service that NASA is running, it's easy to focus on the landers and think of the lander and the mission uh, as, as the same. And, and really to execute a, a full mission, you need, you need quite a bit more than that. You need a lander, um, but you also need an operation center, which we have, have now built and uh, developed and doing training in here at, uh, at Houston. We call that Nova Control. Uh, we have our own manufacturing technologies. We have an in-house additive manufacturing for both uh, titanium and, and stainless steel Inconel alloy parts. Uh, we print our own engines and there's a, a snapshot of our VR900 engine um, on the test stand. Uh, that engine is the one that will land the Nova Sea Lander uh, on the moon in November. Uh, and we've also developed a space communication system. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. We're about 120 people now. So uh, still a small business, but, but growing. And uh, one of the things that, that we are pursuing is an annual lunar mission launch cadence. So our first mission, IM-1, uh, lands at a mid-latitude site this November. And we have uh, five NASA CLPS payloads on that mission. And then we have a number of uh, commercial payloads on that mission uh, that are funded outside of NASA. Some are university, some are, are private. And one in particular I'd call your attention to is EagleCam. And I need to update these charts to give uh, credit to EagleCam, Eagle Cam, to uh, Embry-Riddle Embry Aeronautical University. Um, Eagle Cam will be a small camera that ejects from the lander as we, we do our terminal descent and will actually take images of the IM-1 Nova Sea lander during the final descent. And so it'll be the first third person viewing um, uh, of a landing at the moon. And we're very excited. It'll take those images that it will land nearby and then we'll, uh, we'll radio the images back over to the lander and then, then send them back home. So we're very excited about that. A year later, we have our second mission, IM-2, also on a Nova Sea vehicle. Uh, and that mission has uh, two NASA payloads. One is the Prime-1 drill uh, and the M-Solo camera set. So the Prime-1 drill is a, um, an ice and water resource drill that we will be testing in advance of a subsequent ma uh, mission NASA is flying uh, on um, an AstroBot lander to deliver the, the Viper rover, which also carries a Prime-1 drill on it. There is a, um, another NASA, um, actually two more NASA payloads on that. One's the Hopper and one's uh, Nokia LTE. So Nokia won a contract to demonstrate LTE mesh communications at the moon during a recent tipping point call out of the Space Technology Mission Directorate. And uh, we're their ride. And so we're, we're their ride and partner for taking a rover to the moon, which will then 
um, drive away from the Nova C vehicle and, and demonstrate LTE communications. Um, but also the hopper, which I'll show in a, in a subsequent chart, uh, which will basically demonstrate the ability to do um, surveys and reconnaissance away from the lander uh, by flying a, a micro spacecraft. And um, it, it's, really, it's really kind of, if you think about it, it's like a drone, it's like a small drone but since there's no atmosphere at the moon, of course, we can't use propellers and wings um, or do something like the Mars helicopter that, that Michael presented earlier. So we're carrying a small um, uh, storable propellant system uh, on the hopper and uh, we're gonna, gonna demonstrate that. I will say, um, part of the hopper was actually inspired by Mars Perseverance and that uh, I was visiting JPL a couple of years ago and I got to see the precision landing um, TRN system they're putting together with all those great cameras. And uh, I asked uh, I asked Andrew Johnson if they were going to be able to reuse some of those cameras after they landed. You know, there's a couple of really good cameras on the bottom side of the rover uh, once it lands. And, and he said, no, they, they weren't able to because of geometry that once the, the TRN, terrain relative navigation job, was complete, they wouldn't be able to reuse those cameras again. And that stuck with me. And uh, then we had a brainstorming session and uh, in our group, the idea came out. We're actually reusing our precision landing and hazard avoidance camera system um, and lasers uh, as part of this hopper. So we will we'll take the sensor package that we normally use on Nova C and put that on a micro spacecraft, bolt the micro spacecraft to the Nova C lander use those instruments as, as intended normally first to help land Nova C. But then once we land, when we detach the hopper, those sensors will then be reused and go away and be the navigation system for the hopper. So we're very excited to demonstrate that. We're currently scheduling an IM3 mission. Uh, we have a couple of payloads on, uh, on the books, but we haven't completed enough to, to stack, what we say is stack the mission. Um, probably worth a pause to talk a little bit about how CLIPS is different from other programs. So uh, NASA CLIPS pays um, companies within the, the, the contractor pool to deliver payloads to the boom. But unlike previous missions, those are not NASA missions. Uh, those are still missions by the individual companies which are carrying NASA payloads along with them. And so for IM3, actually, it's, it's entirely possible that the first payloads we have um, commissioned and signed for that will not be NASA payloads at all. We're looking at, at other customers to begin that process. And then as with any shipping company, you, you wait to commit to your, your shipping date or your launch date once you have enough of a, a manifested payload to uh, make a good business case. So we're working on that for 2023 um, by 2024, we hope to bring a Nova D capability online, which I'll talk about shortly. And then as early as 2026, we have a design for Nova M. One of the things that I would mention about our 2022 mission, IM2, on that particular mission, which is going up on a, on a Falcon 9 from SpaceX, we've actually purchased the uh, entire launch capability on, on that uh, mission. And our Nova C lander is actually sub-optimized. So we have about uh, 1,200 kilograms of available cargo to co-manifest co for the, the post-TLI phase of the mission. And um, we're, we're actively basically trying to figure out 
what the market is for a um, cis lunar rideshare capability and uh, have a, a couple of interesting customers who are going to take us up on attaching um, between our lander and, and the Falcon 9 and being a part of, uh, of that mission as well. So uh, as we retooled the company in 2018 to look, look back into go back to our roots in space, really focusing on clips originally and end-to-end -end lunar missions, um, it provided uh, opportunity. Once you have a platform of I'm going to build a lander to go do a mission, it provides opportunities to, to grow into different areas. And um, some of those areas we see here, space communications is a natural one. We needed a control center. Um, and we needed the radiometric tracking and telemetry that, uh, uh, for instance, the DSN provides for uh, Mars missions. However, because this is a commercial lunar mission, uh, we don't have uh, prioritized or even assured access to the DSN. So uh, rather than, than risk, the, risk the chance that mid-mission we could get bumped for an emergency on one of the ongoing NASA missions, We've actually uh, contracted out our own dish time and our own dish locations with our own front end processors and frequency licenses for um, a completely commercial radiometric data and, and tracking solution for lunar missions, which we call the Lunar Tracking and Telemetry Network or the LTN. And uh, we've already begun testing that system uh, in communication with the different dishes. We've developed our uh, radiometrics package and are doing our own orbit determination so a lot of a lot of interesting work in our, our space communications group. Space products, of course, I mentioned the additive manufacturing we do on our own engines. A byproduct of, of building our own engines and igniters is we've actually made sales of, of some of the key components of our propulsion technology. And so uh, we not only do full end-to-end -end lunar missions, but we sell some of the, the core technologies. And we have a, a, a company that we're partnered with called X Energy. Uh, who's developing a next generation uh, nuclear reactor. We're working with them to, to see how we might collaborate and uh, participate in some of the upcoming space nuclear um, opportunities that, that NASA and the Department of Energy uh, have out. So really all this started by saying, hey, let's go to the moon, let's build a platform to land on the moon, realizing then that many of the things we did allowed us to branch out and, and, and to pursue some of these opportunities. We're very excited about what the future holds in intuitive machines. A little bit then about our lunar program. So the, the NASA commercial lunar data, uh, data services, lunar payload services, sorry, CLPS, is one that you may have heard of uh, in the press. Um, being a company that is part of the vendor pool for CLPS, um, we looked at that and said, you know, we don't want to be a one and done. We want to do uh, more than one mission. And uh, so we need a program. Um, it's, it's not one lander, one mission, and that's it. It's multiple landers on multiple missions and then a program to manage that and keep it together. So our beginning offering and, and the mission that will land on IM-1 this year and then on IM-2 next year uses what we call the Nova C. And the C is simply uh, uh, a Roman numeral to represent 100 because the, the design for the Nova C it's for it to land about 100 kilograms to the lunar surface. And um, sometimes it's a little less depending on the, the launch vehicle we choose and the, um, the, the mission phasing. Uh, sometimes it's a little more. And so for our IM2 mission, we have a little bit more closer to 120 kilogram uh, size. Uh, 
The uh, engine technology is the uh, liquid oxygen, liquid methane uh, technology that you saw demonstrated earlier on, uh, on the Morpheus video. We uh, hired Rob Moorhead, who is the uh, engine designer, one of the engine designers on that project, and he's our lead propulsion engineer. So we have a lot of commonality back with the, uh, the ALHAP program in that regard too. Um, we do have a design uh, that we haven't built yet, but it is a design for uh, a NOVA-D, which is essentially um, two NOVA-C propulsion stages, tanks and engines, with a different physical chassis that can carry upwards of 500 kilograms to the lunar surface. And so this is where you're starting to get into more your, your large rover class missions. And we're looking for opportunities to fly that as, as early as 2024. And then uh, on the high end, if, uh, if we take our largest engine, as I mentioned, the Nova C flies the VR900 engine. We also have a VR3500 engine that we developed as part of the HLS risk reduction activity with, uh, with NASA and Boeing. The VR3500 is, is a um, logistics or HLS class uh, engine producing over 3,500 pounds of thrust. And two of those engines would power a, a Nova M, which uh, could deliver somewhere between three and five metric tons to the lunar surface. Uh, and now we're talking about um, habitat logistic packages, um, power supplies, uh, not human landing systems, of course, not, not the descent and ascent stage for, for the human missions, but nonetheless, very significant packages for uh, lunar exploration. Then, as I mentioned, the hopper, and here's the South Pole hopper that will fly on Nova Sea in 2022. And if you squint a little bit and you see one of our navigation pods on Nova Sea here, you can see the commonality of the front end of the hopper. And uh, this will allow us to do a number of things. It will um, allow us to go to extreme environments. So one of the first demonstrations we'll do is we'll hop into a, uh, a deeply shadowed crater and, and take some images. And then we'll hop back out before we get too cold. And then once we hop back out to the rim of that crater, we'll beam the images back over to uh, the Nova Sea and it'll send those home. That's one application you can imagine um, for the, uh, the hopper, which uh, I forget the official name of the hopper is the Micronova. Um, we also have a proposal that we just submitted for the uh, NASA PRISM project for science payloads, where we have a slightly larger version of the hopper that carries seven kilograms of science payload uh, to investigate the Reiner Gamma magnetic anomaly on the moon. And uh, that can only really best be tested by flying magnetometers through a uh, 3D test pattern of that, uh, of that region. And so we'll, we'll actually fly the instruments, not just over the anomaly, we'll fly it through at different altitudes and collect data there. As I mentioned before, uh, we, we have Nova Control ready. Uh, Josh Marshall, who's our, our media um, uh, public relations coordinator guru, um, has a couple of great videos about Nova Control online. And then the LTN is ready. And, and we have a number of small dishes with the uh, LTN, but the, the larger ones that, that we use um, include uh, dishes at Moorhead, um, Goonhilly in the United Kingdom, Ayalu in, uh, uh, in India, and then Parks has a, a large dish in Australia. Um, the number of dishes, it turns out, for um, cislunar and deep space missions is not necessarily as important as the geometry. And as you can see, we have a great longitudinal geometry distribution with those dishes. And uh, 
a decent north-south geometry where we are actually working on a additional southern hemisphere dishes as well to give us better uh, coverage for those missions. Um, we have a, a rich engagement with um, uh, the academic community and uh, a number of those institutions across the, uh, the United States. Um, up until uh, COVID kind of closed things down, we had a robust internship program and uh, have educated over 70 interns at Intuitive Machines since we started the company. And uh, that is great for us. It keeps us fresh and in, in, in tune with new ideas and, and new concepts. Um, it also provides us with a pipeline, of course. Uh, many, of, many of those people have been new hires and early career hires for the company. Um, but really, it's the ideas. We, we get a lot of fresh ideas from our university partnerships uh, across the board. We also have a, uh, um, a global supply chain. There are uh, some parts of our lander that we, we have purchased. For example, um, you can find online that we've purchased the, uh, um, the power control and distribution unit from, um, oh gosh, now it just escaped me. Anyways, uh, Sweden. So we, we purchased that unit from Sweden. Uh, there's, so there's some, some specialty devices we've, we've picked up here and there, uh, but uh, most of the lander were over 93% uh, American made, but did find it advantageous from a business point of view to pick up a few things here and there. So um, one of the things we like to communicate back to the CLIPS program is, well, you know, what you started by, by initiating a commercial lunar market uh, leaves us with 47 congressional, congressional districts over 12 universities now, we probably need to update this one, Josh, in 14 different countries that we're engaged with as part of our Lunar Payload and Data Services program. So LPDS is our internal program for managing and keeping together all of these activities that in part services the NASA CLIPS program. Um, just, just a couple of charts about some things. I, I actually briefed these uh, to the Goddard System Engineering Symposium earlier in the week. Um, you, you heard in my bio that we're, we're keen on um, lean engineering and, and how to move fast. How do we combine, um, you know, the agility of so-called new space with the, the rigor and the success of, of more traditional aerospace where, where we have some of our, our own experience. And one of the, the ways we did that, we uh, invented a, a lighter process, which is a kind of a, a Delta TRR, which allows us to balance cost schedule and safety uh, when we are doing rapid tests of our systems. And, and one example of that is uh, the design of our mobile test stand, which uh, began two years ago as a, a simple um, industrial flatbed truck with uh, slightly over 300,000 miles on it, uh, which then we, we retrofitted into a high pressure LOX methane um, test stand that we drive out to the Houston spaceport to test the VR900-3500 engines. And in that picture, you see a couple of our pad crew on the back of the truck, now outfitted with um, high pressure helium and nitrogen bottles, doers for liquid oxygen and, and uh, liquid methane. And then we have an operational command trailer um, for working with that. And then you see the MTS in all of its nighttime glory, uh, testing our, our engine. which will deliver over 900 pounds of thrust and um, uh, over 320 seconds of specific impulse. So we really like the, the LOX methane technology for what it can provide for us. Uh, 
we also developed a, a line of uh, igniter RCS engines that support both that engine and the, the VR3500. And we're quite proud that we've had 43 hot fire deployments and four cold floor deployments where we take 10 to 15 people from our operations crew and go out in the field to test these engines. Um, and uh, we have a perfect safety record. So uh, there've been no, no injuries uh, associated with this other than the occasional sunburn uh, here in the Texas summer. Um, hundreds of VR900 engine tests and uh, one of the things we're exceptionally proud of is the uh, VR3500 engines, which we built three of as part of that HLS risk reduction. We actually set the, uh, the test stand record on, on stand 115 at uh, the Marshall Space Center with that engine four months after we, we won the contract to develop it. So uh, some agility, but some performance is, is what we're trying to forge into to our company as we go forward. Uh, also from the uh, AIAA, um, SENI seminar, or sorry, from the Goddard SENI sem seminar, but kudos to AIAA. One of the things I uh, preach to them is when you're uh, combining the uh, um, the rigor of traditional aerospace and but you're trying to maintain agility, really uh, taking advantage of the good stuff. And, and AIAA has some uh, rich documented materials for things like uh, managing the mass of a developing system to make sure that uh, your spacecraft doesn't outgrow your launch capability, your launch provider. And we found that uh, what AIAA already has uh, for the standards of how to manage this mass to be incredibly um, effective in, in, in the way we approach managing the vehicle and, and even have compared that historically to uh, other systems, just to make sure that through our development, we were on track um, throughout, uh, throughout this process. So we're going to have landed in the span of 36 months, we will have gone from initiating our lunar program to landing two landers and a micro hopper uh, on the moon in 36 months. But this kind of, of um, knowledge of how to manage your development of those systems and, and to keep us on the, on, the, on the true path to meeting our mass goals was essential. So um, that's just a quick overview. I'll have some time to answer some questions. Uh, it's a, it is a unique time in the aerospace industry. We're, we're very excited because we believe that there is an opportunity to take some of the, uh, the rich heritage of, uh, of aerospace engineering and development that's been done before, um, but then combine some new concepts and, and perspectives and, and reinvent it and recombine those into um, new business models and new engineering solutions. And that the capabilities for space exploration and commerce are, are, are really just about to explode. So very happy about that. And then the, the last chart I have just to, to give you a, a feel, this is as of December of last year, uh, the landings on the moon. And then we hope in the next two years to add our names to that illustrious group um, with the, the mid-latitude IM-1 mission this year, and then the uh, South Pole mission IM-2 coming up in November of next year. And that's all I had uh, as far as charts go. So if we have time for questions, I'll be happy to, to answer any. Now, this is so cool. This is amazing. You know, as you said, this is an amazing time. This, uh, uh, seeing what you are doing, this is uh, very inspiring. And also what you said about AIAA, this standard mass management, this is another thing, you know, people 
you know, a lot of people, especially new people still, they don't really know, you know, what's the, the best, you know, for AWS. So this is really amazing. Uh, you can, uh, so anybody have any question, you're welcome to click raise hand to speak out. Um, Mike, you are uh, kind of unmuted. So if you want to speak out uh, your question, I think Mike was asking about the tipping point. Uh, so if you could kind of explain what was tipping point and what's the relationship with, between you know, SpaceX, Blue Origin. And I believe in the, in the beginning, the uh, finalists actually include Lockheed Martin and the, some of the team. So it's kind of. Yeah, so let me uh, answer a, a couple of different things. Um, one, the, uh, the Clips vendor pool was originally nine companies. And then they had an on-ramp opportunity where um, they let, I believe, four more companies in. And that's when SpaceX and Blue Origin um, also joined the, the ranks of, of the, uh, the Clips companies. So um, we do not compete with SpaceX in Blue Origin and um, Dynetics for the HLS. That's the human landed system. But if you think about what's going to happen with the human, human landed systems, those will be um, multiply redundant, fail safe, uh, you know, verified for, for human standards. In the commercial world, we don't have that requirement. And you probably don't want that requirement. Even though your cargo is precious and you want to deliver cargo and science to the moon, um, doing so with the same level of testing and, and fail-safe capability that you have for, say, a human lander would, would make that prohibitively expensive, or at least it would make it much more expensive. There's a lot that goes into making a human-rated system. And so um, where the, the CLIPS program runs is... is um, delivering NASA payloads and services really from things as small as, I believe the smallest clips payload that's flown, is to be flown is a retro reflector, just a couple of kilograms, um, up to the Viper Rover, which is 500 kilograms. And then I know that our company um, is prepared to offer clip services up to the three to four metric ton range as well. So right up until you start leaving the cargo world and move into the human transportation world, that's where you kind of leave what we're doing and you get into where Blue Origin, um, SpaceX and, and Dynetics are in the HLS world. So different approaches. The tipping point program by STMD is one that we're, we're very fond of. We, we think it's a great program because what they're looking at are technologies that you might have at, at, at a technology readiness level of uh, four or greater, that if you had some investment for the, the non-recurring engineering to push that over into a higher TRL, that there would be opportunities to, um, to take that and, and not only improve NASA's space exploration capabilities, but also reduce industry cost for, for space commerce and space activities. And um, the call is different every year. That's, that is run out of S STMD, and they have different topics every year. The one last year included uh, extreme access and... Um, um, communications technologies. And that's why Nokia won one for demonstrating LTE at the moon. And uh, we partnered with them to provide their transportation um, in that proposal. And then we won one for the micro Nova under the uh, access to extreme environments with that demonstration model of separating from the larger lander then flying off into a deeply shadowed crater um, and, and being able to do science and collect images and then, then fly back. So that is separate from the CLIPS program, but in those particular instances, the proposals to tipping point 
actually proposed a space demonstration uh, on our vehicle. Yeah, I think, can you see the Q&A box? I think uh, there are two questions right now. Uh, the first one was by Matt. Matt, uh, you are unmuted. Do you want to speak out or just uh, ask Dr. Crane to answer? Matt, you can speak out and then maybe introduce yourself to, to uh, Dr. Crane, if you want. You can unmute yourself. Tim. All right, hello, Tim. Uh, we know each other, but I was just curious. Um, very interesting, very interesting talk today. I really liked your your systems approach slides. So that just made me ask the question. Thirty six months is very impressive for two missions, and and how are you balancing the the relatively lower budgets of clips with the the speed and the risk and and everything that goes along with sending a mission to the moon? Kind of what's what's IM's approach there? Yeah, great, great question, Matt. And for those of you who don't know Matt, he's, uh, um, I don't know, Matt, you're a, a colleague, a friend, a frenemy, maybe? Um, uh, I'd say co colleague, friendly yeah. competition. I think. Friendly competition, absolutely. Matt's with uh, Mass and Space Systems. And uh, we, we wish them the best on their 19C mission. Um, they've won one of the six awards that, that NASA has given out of CLIPS. And uh, we think that it is just as an aside for answering your question, Matt, we think it's vitally important um, for all of the CLIPS vendors to be successful. So we do wish you guys the best um, on that mission. Um, so how do we balance it? Uh, the, the whole idea of lean engineering is, is, is at times as much an art as it is a science. Um, but what I, what I told the folks at Goddard was, is, is you really have to, you have to have three, three key components. Um, the first one, uh, the first one is you have to know what's important. So you have to know if, if within your project is, is success at, at all other, uh, at, the, at the expense of all other metrics, um, you know, as it might be on a human program. Um, if that's the metric, you all have to be on the same page with that. If it is um, um, cost and schedule, but, but accepting higher risk, you all have to be on the same page inside your team to understand what your your approach to balancing those those factors out are because if you if you you're not on the same page it can really set some tension up within the team um that's the first one the, the second one and you saw the title on, on one of my slides which is use the good stuff it, it's it's a warning to uh new space companies and, and and even if it's old engineers at new companies to not throw away um all of the learning and and the the knowledge of the uh established aerospace community, but, but to, to mine it, you know, use it as a, as a reservoir of knowledge for good things that really will help you not having to, to relearn what someone already knows. Um, and then the last one is to drive the schedule. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of uh, what we call arbitrary and inflexible milestone tests where um, we're, we're going to set a date and we're going to test on that date. Um, and, and we'll gather the data from the test, even if the, the, the test result was, it was not successful. And we do that with a managed risk process to say, yeah, we understand that. And, and a, a less than successful test won't cripple the program, um, but it will drive interfaces. Um, it will drive test readiness in a way that, that no amount of PowerPoint um, discussions or engineering can. And, I think you see this quite a bit in, in a lot of the companies that are out there now. I mean, um, I, I chuckle when I see the, the Starship tests from um, SpaceX and the news and, and the, uh, um, 
the news commentator, they, you know, they kind of have a sad face, like, oh, it didn't work, you know, not too bad that they didn't have a successful test. Whereas I, I assure you, the folks at SpaceX um, were quite willing to risk that asset to push the test objectives and, and to get closer to flight. And they're viewing those tests as test success. And so a lot of that driving the schedule and understanding how to manage your risk, I think is key for moving fast. We've had some setbacks internally, but those were all acceptable um, to get to points where uh, we had advanced our technology and capabilities. So Ian McNeil says, you're welcome. He was on the original team for the AIAA <laughs> mass properties. Yeah, uh, we, that's, I keep, a I keep a copy of that in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah. it, it's been great. And uh, um, it, it's, it's been interesting when we've, we've talked to uh, folks in other industries um, who aren't necessarily as, as mass conscious, but are trying to get into space. We share a lot of the concepts from that document with them and, uh, uh, it really helps to uh, form a bridge. We go, we're not making this up. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 well warranted, and and we really really do use that quite a bit. I'm glad it was a big help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're on uh, our master equipment list, Rev 51, for the first mission right now, and you're yeah. continually tweaking and refining and releasing mass growth allowance and and managing PMR. Thank you. Yeah. So let me see, that was uh, Matt's question and press of progress, secret sauce, uh, getting this far in such a short time. Um, one of the things that helped us quite a bit too is when, when the company started and, and it, was, it was relatively small, we, uh, we, we hired a lot of systems experts. And so um, in many cases, we didn't have to do trade studies on every system to know uh, either what was work, what would work, or what was was good enough, and uh, we do um, we do resist the uh, we do resist the urge to optimize every system because uh, the old aerospace adage, "Better is the enemy of good." Um, we're really slow progress, and so we have to be willing to move forward and uh, and accept a suboptimal solution that works and gets us there that we have opportunities to improve on in the future. In fact, when you look at Nova D, absolutely, when we build the Nova D, lessons learned from Nova C and improvements from that will roll in. And that'll be the appropriate time for, for moving to better. But right now we're, we're focusing on sticking the landing with Nova C and not necessarily putting every bell and whistle um, that you could on a lander. A perfect example of that, just so you know, you know, a lot of folks, since we're located in Houston, um, a lot of folks on our team have a human spaceflight background and, uh, that human spaceflight background, uh, comes with a, um, uh, a significant amount of fault recovery and failure recovery to second and tertiary systems. And, and we've had to, uh, resist the urge to, you know, go down three levels of failure and have solutions for that because you really open yourself up for complexity, um, uh, you know, if, if you, if you try to do too much fault recovery and you don't have the resources that say a, a human flight system has, you're really taking resources away from making sure that the primary system worked in the first place and you didn't need those secondary and tertiary systems. So we have to run that balance quite a bit. I think Matt just uh, posted an interesting uh, link. A good example of funny poke at one of the Mason project by 
into a machine. <laughs> Hi, Tim. This, this is Svetlana Hansen. Uh, uh, really nice to see you. I'm also from Johnson Space Center. I work at the, at the get, Gateway, so I'm really happy and I'm looking forward to see the success of intuitive machines. I have uh, one more question. And uh, yes, I, I, I was going to compliment also you guys is put together a team just absolutely phenomenal. I, I know quite a few of uh, uh, your team members, Trent, Susan, Steve, uh, Stephen Altimus, uh, Anna, and, and the list is going on. You, you have a, a lot of talent in there. Uh, what is the biggest challenge to the mission success that you see right now? Uh, the biggest challenge, because we're moving so fast, um, shelf life, you know, th there's sometimes you find interactions between systems, um, because you, you had one more opportunity to test it. And, and, you know, if, 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 if schedule and costs weren't an issue, you know, I'm sure everybody on our team would say, wow, you know, we'd like more time to test. There's all, you'd always like more time to test. And so the challenge for us is making sure that, that in the short schedule we've signed up for, that we have the right set of tests for our test and verification program and that we execute them all um, to, to our satisfaction and that, that those tests didn't leave any gaps. That's, that's the biggest thing. And, and you know, large aerospace companies have entire test and, and, and verification groups within the company. And we're much more integrated within our, our development teams. So uh, yeah, I, I'd say that that's, that's going to be what uh, in the end, we know we can beat the physics in the end, we know we've got great systems. Um, but did we pick the right elements for TNV that, that captured um, all the things we needed for mission success? That'll be the biggest challenge. That's a true system integration kind of answer. <laughs> oh, um, just while we're waiting for any more questions, I, I do have a very, uh, I'm very curious about the LTN you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, because is this completely independent from DSN? So they own dishes, those things? Yes, it is. In fact, oh. it's, it's a product offering from intuitive machines. And we're, we're, we're in the process of offering that to um, other companies. So if you have a deep space mission um, or a lunar mission, you'd like to execute and uh, you're, you're having difficulty either scheduling DSN time or uh, getting the FCC licensing for your, uh, your communications, um, we can handle that for you. And, and we already have the agreements and the networking and the security the uh, person in charge of our ground systems is, is Dr. Troy LeBlanc, who uh, was part of mission control and operations at the Johnson Space Center for a number of years, and is making sure that we have all the same rigor and capability um, in our network, the LTN, um, uh, as you would get on the DSN. And so, you know, the DSN is a wonderful system. It was, it's world-class and, and there's nothing else like it yet. Um, but, our hope is that if we have a if we have a cislunar economy, that there'll be need for um, uh, lunar range uh, tracking and communication assets um, beyond what the DSN can provide. And, and the DSN is 
fully and oversubscribed right now. So we're, we're offering this up as a, a commercial relief to the, um, the, the basically the, the crowded uh, demand on, on the government's DSN uh, capability. Yeah, because a few years ago, I was in a small satellite conference. At that time, I still carry the AWA um, brand at that time in Utah. I think somebody was talking about our exhibition, talking about they can, um, outside DSN, they have also kind of source like you were, you were doing, and they can share the resource over internet, you know, so some people don't have a lot of money or resources they can share. So I was surprised because I thought there was not, uh, really not, uh, no one else can do it, but you are amazing. That's really wonderful because you, you mentioned about this lunar uh, economy. And um, last week, we actually have a speaker from JPL, Dr. Patricia Beauchamp. Uh, I think they were uh, doing this because right now everybody crazy about Mars, you know, simple return 2031. They are planning for afterwards for the Venus exploration. And uh, they were actually talking about establishing the communication uh, system between uh, Earth and the Venus you know, to pave the way for, for their exploration. So do you think this kind of system, LTN, that may potentially be used for Venus exploration as well? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, the assets we have on board um, aren't as big as the, as the big 70 meter dishes that the DSN has, but we, have, uh, we do have a number of, of uh, 30 and 60 meter dishes in, in our um, network. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's not limited to the moon at all. We could absolutely be an auxiliary for um, um, a deep space mission. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's truly really, really great, wonderful. That, that, this is really right direction, right step. Really amazing. Yeah, I had another question, but I think the, uh, uh, you know, uh, she already asked about this, uh, you know, the small team, how the small team, uh, you know, this experience is really amazing, but you already kind of answered it already. So it's really, very impressive. Yeah, another thing is more about AIWA, but I already kind of mentioned, you know, is, uh, you see, I noticed a lot of new AWA folks or students, they don't really know much about what AWA did or what kind of resources. Um, do you have any, any kind of suggestion you know, for us you know, to engage with, with young people and the student to let them know more? I, I've been trying to get the technical committee people uh, to kind of show up once in a while uh, there uh, so that people know what AWA are actually very active for. Uh, but do you, do you have any suggestion for this kind of thing? Well, it's, it, uh, you know, I, I stayed through school and got my PhD. And so um, being an academic originally, um, publishing was very important. And so my first exposure to, to AIAA was uh, uh, writing papers for conferences and journals. And, and that, really, that really pulls you in. So I think my advice for, for early career people um, young people would be, um, you know, let's say you get a bachelor's degree in engineering or science and, and you want to work in the aerospace community. That's great. But if you want to set yourself apart from, um, from your peers, AIAA provides a, a, a technical depth that um, even if you just join to, to peruse the stacks as a student of, of journal articles and paper articles, it will enrich your technical skills at a time in your career where that could really set you apart. So that, that would kind of be the, the, the lowest common denominator of value, but then above and beyond that, um, one of the things I have found in my career is uh, it is a small world. And uh, um, you know, 
Matt and I are competitors for Maston and, and Intuitive Machines today, um, 10 years from now, I, I might be working for Matt or vice versa. And, and so um, using AIAA events and networking to, uh, to meet people and then you'll find out you're working with them or for them or contracting them later. Uh, it's really been great for my career to, to, uh, to get some of the networking uh, through AIAA conferences and, and, uh, and research pursuits. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, uh, this is very great advice. You know, we'll uh, use this to tell our young, young people, young generation to try to do that. Yeah, sorry, earlier I didn't realize you had the men were actually, well, as you said, competing brands. Uh, so, but apology okay. for that. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it, it is a small world because when, uh, when I was on the All Hat project back at NASA, we flew relative navigation, terrain navigation, technology demonstrators um, on Mastin um, zombie uh, platforms. So it's a, it's a, it is a small community of people. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's wonderful. You know, that's why we want people to, you know, either we pro provide also the platform so people network, you know, even though we know each other, but, you know, we'll bring more opportunity to socialize you know to yeah. know yeah as you explain the situation that's what people told us some of the uh, senior AW people so that's what the AW the best you know they provide things you know in their days you know the contract might move from Lockheed Martin to Boeing to Northrop Grumman so it's kind of providing this ground you know you, you kind of know what other people are doing and then when the contract shift you might have some chance you know if, if something work out so, absolutely absolutely that's, that's the beauty of Adobe Plus, what you were saying, you know, the paper, publication, you know, and the learning experience. Yeah, this is really, really amazing. So really love it, you know. That's, I've been trying to do our best. For example, March 6th, we are doing the fourth uh, Adobe Los Angeles Las Vegas section, university student branch mini conference. So we have been trying to kind of get provide student an opportunity to kind of thing as you said, you know, to have a chance. It's not a paper conference, Region 6 is doing that, uh, but the people at least get a chance to present and, uh, you know, network with the professionals. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, career advice. Yeah, my, my student paper competition in 1994 um, really marked a, 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 a pivotal point in my career where I understood. Ah, that's great. <laughs> Which you can share with us at some point, you know, because students love to hear these things. You know, yeah. this year Region Six is doing the uh, 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 Region Six in our area is uh, doing the student paper conference conference in Cal State Long Beach. You know, they rotate around, so it's actually within our category, but it's, it's actually not a section event; it's a Region Six event. That's right. Yeah, so that's right. not much to do with us, but you know, we're aware it's a great opportunity. It is. And we we have been asked students from this area how do they submit paper to. You know, I think previous years, one years, once in Seattle or somewhere, the, the students were very interested in this. How do we submit a paper? What's the criteria? They are very interesting, as you said, to separate apart. You know, you know the seek ex excellence uh, in aerospace advancing their career. Yeah, we wish you can uh, when you have some time can share with us. You know, inspire students. But I think today is just so inspiring. It's amazing, and we post a video, and more people will you know see it, uh, got inspired. Very good. Well, um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk and uh, best of luck to uh, the Mars 2020 team. Yeah, that's coming right. up. And uh, Matt, best of luck to you guys at Maston. And uh, um, 
you know, hopefully 10 years from now, we'll look at this as the, the dawn of a new age of exploration. Yeah, yes. And Matt is in our area. So, you know, kind of, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Really thank appreciate you. it. You, you, you too. I mean, more missions, there's a lot to learn at the moon and, and every planet beyond. So, yeah, Matt, come back again. Speak with us. Speak to us when you have time. <laughs> All right, so if no more questions, let's thank uh, uh, Dr. Tim Crane again. Thanks a lot. You bet. Yeah, this is amazing, yeah. So uh, really thank appreciate you. everyone. Yeah, thank you, thank you, uh, Stevena. Uh, so thank you so much, everyone. Uh, I wish you enjoyed today's event and uh, stay tuned. And uh, uh, we have more uh, uh, events coming up to get people network together. So have a nice Saturday. And have a great weekend. And uh, today's video will be posted online uh, uh, today or tomorrow. We'll send a notice to everyone. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.